Welcome. Welcome to Hillcrest this morning. You guys all right if I just organize this real quickly? I should probably do that before I step up here, right? That's usually an important thing, right? Sometimes. Uh, so just like you heard Fred say, man, we are, uh, we are jumping into the gospel of Luke. And so if this is your first time at Hillcrest, it uh, feels like a great time uh, as we start a new series together. And with anything in life, uh, I hope you guys do this too. Where, where do you start? Where do you guys start when you start things? There, that's usually the most intuitive place you start at the beginning. But another element that we add to when we start at the beginning is beginning with the end in mind. I think this is true in all of life. We begin with the end in mind. When you start out cooking something, some of you guys just throw ingredients into a dish and then see what happens. The normal people, we have some product that we're trying to deliver, the end, banana bread, whatever it might be, and we begin doing things that reflect that end that we're trying to accomplish. I think we do that in our professions, our vocations, as a sermon, week in, week out. I'm thinking with the end in mind. There was a book Stephen Covey wrote, right? Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, one of those habits beginning with the end in mind, and he talks about a funeral and showing up to your own funeral and what people might say about you at that funeral. There's a guy, a pastor, Wayne Cordero, back in Hawaii, and he told this story about, uh, about this Russian rabbi who was just feeling disillusioned in life, and he was, he was wandering the streets on one cold Russian evening just processing uh, the, the circumstances of his life, the, 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 the claims of what he believed to be true. He, he was just processing and feeling just a little low in his faith and, and caught up in his thoughts. And then suddenly he was jolted awake by the words, halt, who are you and what are you doing here? And, 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 and you could hear just the, 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 the chill of the Russian night was only only colder thing, colder was the chill of the, just the lostness of his heart, and it jolted him back, and, and he, asked, he, he asked this Russian military guard that he wandered onto their facility, he asked them, can you say that again? And the guard, halt, who are you, and what are you doing here? And so a smile came on the rabbi's face. He turned to the guard, how much do you make? To which the guard, slightly confused, responded, well, what does that have to do with anything? And the rabbi responded, whatever you make, I will pay you that sum to ask me those two questions for the rest of my life. Who are you and what are you doing here? As we begin Luke, we're thinking with the end in mind, and those two questions reveal a lot about who we are and what we believe to be true. And so as we begin Luke, those questions, who are you and what are you doing here, I hope are an awakening for we think with the end in mind. Because as a pastor, you, you, guys, you guys are so gracious. One of the things I love about being a pastor is I have to get to sit with people at the end of their life. In those moments, right as they are on death's door, I get to sit with people. And it is an incredible gift to sit with people who demonstrate a confidence when they think of what's about to come. 
I get to sit with those people and I get encouraged when I hear them tell stories of faith and who they are in Christ and what they've been doing with their life that reflects what they believe the end will be. That it actually isn't an end, but just a beginning to a beautiful life and eternity with Christ. It is one of the happiest moments for me to sit in the presence of someone who is overwhelmingly confident and who's thought with the end in mind. But what is also almost simultaneously as painful for me as a pastor is, is to sit with someone who doesn't have that hope. Maybe, and it's been some of you guys who have connected me to a cousin, to a friend, to a neighbor who, who has us sit with them in the midst of a tragedy and, and they ask us, where, where is my loved one? Or where is my loved one going in there? And they're looking for some kind of hope. And one of the most painful moments for me as a pastor is an inability to offer the hope that they're looking for. As happy as it is to sit with those that have confidence, almost the other extreme of sitting with those that are without hope, without confidence in what is to come. And then it feels like there's the rest of us that find ourselves somewhere in between in this journey that don't maybe have that unbelievable boldness and confidence of the end, but we're not hopeless and despairing as if we're unaware of some of the confidence we have. And so we find ourselves somewhere in between. I think Luke is writing to us and wanting us to experience more of that confidence. And I remember, you guys remember hearing about a guy named Wally Norling in my life? So there was a guy named Wally Norling that I spent the last, essentially the last two years of his life walking through the book of Ephesians. We'd just go and sit and have date bars and orange juice, and Wally would regale me with the exegesis of Ephesians, and we would just talk about life. And a guy named Chuck Swindoll, a guy named Larry Osborne, uh, would consider Wally a mentor in their life. Like those guys, like they're actually something. Those are like special dudes in our evangelical subculture. They would consider Wally a significant mentor in their life. And sitting with Wally, there was this boldness, this confidence that as you sat with him, you increased in your certainty. And so my father-in-law sat with Wally just before he died and asked him a few questions about where this confidence comes from. So I want you to, to hear from Wally this morning. Now, the cardiologist told you here about three weeks ago that your heart was wearing out and not long to live. He just said there's nothing more medicine can do for you. Not even any point in coming to see me anymore. So that was it. So you get that news from the doctor. How do you respond? How do you feel when he gives you that news? I've lost my singing voice, but I was going to sing the Hallelujah Chorus. I just sang it right there. I've been asking the Lord for some time now to deliver me from this world. And the prospect of leaving this world and going to the presence of the Lord is such a marvelous and wonderful thought. How could you be anything but elated when you have confidence that that's what's going to happen? Now, what's, what's the foundation then of, of your hope? Why are you so optimistic about facing this final enemy? And why is it you have so much confidence? I have confidence because I know there's nothing I have to bring into it but the blood of Christ. That's good enough. 
the rest of it is marginal, but coming in, pleading the blood of Christ is enough. As I understand the scriptures, I don't need any more than that. That the blood of Christ has washed away all my sin is keeping on washing it as I confess my sins. So for those of us that aren't quite so far down life's road as, as you are, who, who find sometimes our, our hope not as full and as, as, as complete as we would like it, you got any advice for those of us still on this, on this journey, just maybe a little behind you? Take little steps of faith. And when you experience the grace of God in them, it helps you to dare bigger steps and become just kind of the foundation of the way you look at life, I would say. It's a great way to live and a wonderful way to die. So we think with the end in mind. I, I don't want to scare you, but you're all going to die at some point, right? And so we think with the end in mind actually has an impact on all we do in this life. And so we got a lot of great things coming on around here. I hope you got to enjoy some caramel apples downstairs. I hope you got to see some of the ministry opportunities, men's, women's, Joy Connect, our family ministries. Life Group is launching this week. We're going to be in Luke. Our Life Group leaders are gathering tomorrow night to pray over you, to think about you, to, to, to trust that God is working your life through this series. There's a lot of things going on. But for me, for our elders, there's one thing that matters more than anything else. That when that day comes for you, that you can stand confidently, boldly. Nothing else matters. Everything else we do, there's one thing that matters above everything else. That you can stand confidently, boldly upon the blood of Jesus. That you think with the end in mind. And so I, I don't know where you find yourself as you enter into our journey through Luke. I, I don't know if you're coming in skeptical about who this person of Christ is, that, that somehow you've heard about him, but you're not sure you trust these claims, I'm so thankful you're here. Because Luke is investigating these claims about this person that rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. Uh, maybe you're young, and you're thinking, that end in mind feels so far away from me, it's so distant, I can't even fathom it. Uh, it's never too early to begin processing and believing and thinking and living with the end in mind. And maybe uh, you, you've heard this Christian message, you've heard the message over it, and it's fallen sometimes on deaf ears as you get in the midst of life and busyness and kids and family and vocation. Uh, I hope there's a renewed passion for the certainty of who Jesus is that Luke is going to be calling us to, because here is why Luke is writing. He tells us this, he's going to write his gospel in order to increase our confidence and certainty in the truth of Jesus. And Luke is convinced that a justified certainty about Jesus, a justified certainty in the person and work of Jesus is the foundation of a joy-filled and inspired life. And so as we pray this morning, as we begin our journey through Luke, uh, wherever you find yourself, I'm going to ask that you also pray, God, increase my certainty in who you are. 
Give me greater confidence that you are who you say you are, that you would take another little step of faith towards more life with Christ. So pray with me as we jump in this morning. God, you are so good. Uh, We want to hear from the inspired words that you wrote through Luke uh, to tell the story of your son, Jesus Christ. And so help us hear from Luke. Help us gain in the confidence that Luke desires for our life, that we too would have confidence, that we believe that we are thinking with the end in mind that death comes for us all and the way we live with confidence and certainty in who you are impacts are every Monday to Saturday. So reveal yourself always for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. So here's here's why we chose Luke. Uh, As as we thought about where are we headed in the fall, why Luke? And here are a few of the reasons for us that Luke came to the surface. First, man, it feels timely and culturally relevant. It feels like people are looking for truth for their lives, to anchor their life in, and they're looking in so many empty wells feels like this timely, culturally relevant message of certainty, something to anchor your life in, feels incredibly relevant right now. feels like people are looking for truth. Man, it feels like they're looking. I, I mean, I, when I was 18, postmodern felt like a thing that people were trying to figure out that they could choose whatever reality they wanted. feels like that has just accelerated and become much more exponential, that there is no sense of what people are anchored in. Luke is writing to give us certainty that Jesus is who he said he is, someone we can anchor our life to. And I love this. You want to know who wrote the most words of the New Testament? Paul wrote the most books, right? But you know who wrote the, wrote, wrote the most words? Luke wrote Luke and Acts. Has the most words in the New Testament for someone who uses a lot of words in their life. I like that. A guy that uses a lot of words to say something. I, mean, I, I just take that as significant. That he, God, in his infinite wisdom and inspired word, gave Luke the most words attributed in the New Testament. And so we're going to explore him and his words that he recorded in Luke. And then third, I mean, just our focus here around here at Hillcrest, we are about life with Jesus. We want to focus on him, that we want to be a people helping people find life with Jesus one life at a time. And so it just feels like at times, though, we can get distracted from that reality. We'll feel like some of the distractions that keep us from being focused on life with Jesus. And you're going to do better than first service did in this. I am confident about that because you are well rested. It's 1030. We are ready to go. Well, what distracts us? Jim's like, a cough could distract us from the moment. We love you, Jim. So say that again. Busyness. Man, we just get caught up in the hecticness of life and we become busy and we, we get distracted and lose sight of our focus on Jesus. What else? Money. Man, money. The economy is up, down. What do we know? I, I, I get so tied up in knots watching the economic cycles and, and the, the uncertainty that it starts to creep in my heart and we're distracted and we lose focus on what Luke is telling us about the certainty we can find in Christ. What else? internet. Man, I'm just bombarded, right? I, I just scroll. I, if you're anything like me, you stand in a checkout line 
and I have 20 seconds, right? I got 20 seconds between me and the person in front of me, and what do I do? Pull out my phone, scroll aimlessly at absolutely nothing for 20 seconds, thinking I have to make some productive use of my time, and it ends up being unproductive and more draining and more exhausting. We're just in this incredible digital world that, that sometimes is so distracting. Both the external pressures, but also I go the internal distractions that could happen. You guys know we're headed. We're, we're about to organize a, a, a contract with Building God's Way and, and begin asking them to explore how do we elevate the kids' discipleship spaces around here? How, how do we get more quality spaces? And so we're distracted externally, and there could become this distraction internally to start focusing on other things. What color is the carpet going to be? Are we going to put in some kind of technology? What kind of TV should we put in? And we just start getting distracted from all the stuff of this life. Here's our hope at Hillcrest. We just want to focus on Jesus. We want our lives anchored in that reality. And so we commit to a gospel like Luke where we're just going to hear and focus on Jesus throughout our study. And here is where Luke chooses to start his gospel. Here's what he says. Inasmuch as many of you have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those, bless you, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered to them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so Luke has a very specific goal. He wants to deepen our certainty. And, and what we appreciate about Luke, he actually researched and checked his sources about who Jesus is. And as he's writing, here's what he tells us in the very first sentence. One sentence, those four verses were one sentence. Here's what he tells us, that he's writing this narrative and he has very, a very specific person that he's been commissioned by. He says, oh, excellent Theophilus. Oh, excellent Theophilus, I have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. As, as a growing body of first century believers, Theophilus is his audience, his recipient, and he's trying to compile a very organized, substantial, historical record of the person and work of Christ. And so my first question is, so who's Theophilus? <laughs> and so who Theophilus is, we read, he's a Gentile, much like us. Much like us, he has heard these claims of who Jesus is, and he wants to believe if they are true or not. And so, he's most likely a wealthy benefactor of some kind that commissions Luke to go write this. It's not like Wikipedia. In current modern day, we can just all compile and collaborate on historical realities. Some wealthy benefactor had to commission an undertaking and support with resources the exploration of this investigation. And so he's referred to as, oh, excellent Theophilus, a, a title, a potentially a Roman authority or just someone of means. But what I love is, did you catch his name? Theophilus. I mean, we have a couple kids around here, I think, that are named Theo. What's Theophilus mean? friend of God. <laughs> that, 
that the guy that Luke is writing to, his very name, friend of God, and so some people have theorized maybe Luke didn't really have a very specific one single benefactor, but instead is writing to a general group of people that have a heart to know this God, <laughs> that they want to explore the claims of who Jesus was. So I, I'm still convinced it's one single guy, but the beauty that as friends of God, we too want to know who this Jesus is. And so Luke writes, so who was Luke? Here's what I love about Luke. He too was just a Gentile. He's just another knucklehead. He didn't grow up in this Jewish religion. I always think it's fascinating. Some people try to like trip us up and they go, hey, did you know Jesus wasn't a white guy? I'm like, where have you been for 2,000 years? Is that new information to you? The fact that we're Gentiles, we're not Jews, what a beautiful thing that we've been grafted in to this historic reality. So he's a Gentile and he's a doctor, a meticulous guy that wants to track all the facts. And where do we hear that? Paul tells us in Colossians, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. And we know those doctors, right? We have a few around here. They are meticulous. They want to know all the details. I mean, can you imagine hearing a claim that there was a virgin birth? Luke wants to know, did that really happen? Let me see the medical records. Let me hear and investigate. Did that really happen? To hear Jesus smushing mud in someone's eye and the guy's suddenly able to see. I imagine Luke is going to go track those guys down, hear those firsthand accounts, and try to understand where did that story come from and is it true? You know, hey, we heard Jesus was this sinless guy. I know your brothers. Let me go talk to them. Was he really the guy that he claimed to be? And so Luke, the doctor, meticulous, investigating this historical account, and I love this. Educated, thoroughly, you could tell by his writing style, but Paul tells us a little bit about his character. In Timothy, in one of his letters, he tells us a little bit about Luke's character. He says this about Luke. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans have gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me the character of Luke and who he is, he is committed to this Jesus. He wants to understand, is this really true and do I want to give my life? Because unlike those early Jews growing up around this idea, he's converted through testimonies. He comes to faith later in life. Much like us, he wasn't there for any of those stories. When Peter walked on water, Luke wasn't there. And I imagine he would have wanted to be. Much like we would have wanted to be, Luke would have wanted to be there when the water stirred and the lepers were healed. I imagine he would have wanted to be there watching these stories unfold, but much like us, he wasn't a firsthand witness. Instead, he begins to compile this account. And here's what he tells us. And as much as been undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word would have delivered them to us. So these stories are circulating and Luke begins to compile a narrative about the certainty of who Jesus is. He wants us to think with the end in mind. And so he researched, checked it out, and began to compile a logical account of Jesus. Here's what Luke tells us. 
pick it up there, verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. What's that mean? You guys have any guess? Do you think historically chronological order mattered as much as it does for us? Man, so chronologically, we love to know the events. 1 p.m., what happened? All right, and at 1.05, what happened? All right, now on Tuesday at 2.03, what happened? But historically, that's not what Luke's biggest concern is. Luke is trying to organize an orderly account to tell about this life of Christ. So if you compare it to Mark or Matthew, you'll see some historical inconsistencies. There's not a chronological order. It's different. What do you do with that? Does that worry you? Does that, that cause frustration? Instead, that's not Luke's point. So around here, we're trying to understand Luke's intent as he is telling us and organizing these stories. And so he organizes them, not chronologically in a sense, but more by themes. You guys see that we have in the background a manger? Because the big theme as Luke begins his story, it's about the entrance of the king. And so he's going to tell us, we're going to be doing Christmas in October this year, guys. It's going to be a wonderful thing. Luke set out to write an orderly account for what purpose? Welcome to 1030. Maybe that 15 minutes earlier of second service has really thrown you guys. You're like, man, that 15 minutes, David, we just need a little bit more, 15 minutes more of sleep. What's he doing this for? What's his purpose? Say it again, Gus. Start at the beginning. Start at the beginning, Start at the beginning of Jesus' life for what purpose? What does he want us to feel? Man, that's it. Yeah. He wrote to increase our, our confidence. So he's going to go all the way back to the birth narrative of who this guy is. He wants us to feel this certainty and confidence in the person and work of Christ. So, so what does that do for us? Here's what Luke says. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely, O most excellent Theophilus, that you might have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. And so in my mind, what's it feel like when we have that increased certainty? And what would it feel like to have a lack of certainty? What might that lead to? And so as we begin this journey through Luke, we too are going to start with the end in mind. <laughs> If we experience what Luke wants us to experience, if, if he wants us to have this confidence and certainty in our life, well, what would that look like? What would that feel like? So I jotted down a few ideas, and I know some of you note takers, you're looking at your notes going, there is no possible way I can fit all the words you're saying in this very tiny little box. And so just as we go into this next section, don't try and write all these down. Don't, don't try and, and write every single one of these down, but maybe there's one or two that, that, that stands out to you that you'd actually like to see little steps of faith and an increased certainty because you look at these and, and for you, they resonate where a lack of certainty might lead to. And so a lack of certainty in the personal work of Christ, where, where's that lead? I think it starts here. We look at Christianity as this convenient, consumeristic, apathetic thing. That, that that is our, I think, I look at our Western evangelical culture, we have this convenient, consumeristic, apathetic mentality towards this life of Christ. I mean, it, it feels like this to me. You guys, I love food, right? Food's a great thing. 
And I love, I love making food. If by that you guys understand me to mean I love when other people make me food, right? That would be the, that would be the convenient part. I love making food insofar as that means I love when other people make me food. Sometimes it feels like we look at Christianity that way. I mean, I love the personal work of Jesus. I love who he is insofar as it's someone else is doing the work for me. I, I love investigating the claims insofar as that means I don't actually have to make any effort in investigating these claims of the personal work of Christ. Now, I, I think that for me, what leads to a lack of certainty, what, what a lack of certainty in Jesus leads to, just this apathetic faith. There's an openness to an unwarranted openness to other religions and cultural perspectives. People are looking for truth, right? Look around and there's people looking to anchor their life in something and yet there's an openness to other perspectives that feels unwarranted based upon the claims of who Jesus is. A lack of certainty in him would lead to an increased unwarranted openness. Various pursuits of meaning, significance, and joy. Uh, we look around this life. What does a lack of certainty in Jesus lead to? We, we look around and find significance and meaning in other things. Right? What is the essence of gluttony? It's just thinking food can offer more significance and joy than food actually can. What, what is greed? greed? Greed is just the essence that you think money can provide more significance, meaning than it actually can. Instead, is food good? Oh, man, if you're a Harry Potter fan, I had this butterbeer cake last night. Oh, it was fantastic. It was wonderful. Various pursuits. Man, is, is money a bad thing? Well, it's a tool to leverage for the sake of God's kingdom. Striving to control circumstances. Man, we look around. I think I heard Jim say the economy is just up and down. And, and I try and grab my hands. I put my hands around all the circumstances in my life that seemed outside of my control. You guys know what the first sin was in this world? What Adam and Eve did? Because it feels directly correlated that for me. What was the first sin? What did Adam and Eve do? Disobeyed. In what way? I love, this is, man, this is why I love second service. You guys are excellent. First service, it was like I had to kick the tires a little bit to get them moving. Man, go for it again, Rhonda. Okay. <laughs> Disobedience, Dennis, go for it. In what way? What'd they do? What did Adam and Eve do? They ate that fruit as an expression of what? Yeah. Say, yeah. They were doubting the goodness of God. Defiance against the goodness of God. God wasn't going to provide for their needs, so what did they need to do? <laughs> need to control the circumstances. I need to figure it out and hold on tight because if I don't hold on to it, it's not going to happen. Do we as Americans ever wrestle with that? Never. Never. We never have a problem with that at all. Strive to control the circumstances. There's a lack of certainty in the person of Christ. There's this, there's this essence that starts to bubble up in us. And don't hear me say we don't want to exercise influence, right? But I think there's an inappropriate line that we could lead to, again, that dates back all the way back to Adam and Eve. We doubt the goodness of God in our life. Anxiety and fear and trials. Where I'm in the midst of a situation and my lack of certainty in Christ causes this fog, this increased fog to start settling in on my soul where the challenges that I'm experiencing 
seem to overwhelm me and I get spun up and I start to panic in my mind and I get lost in my thoughts and I'm unclear of what the next step might be. There's this lack of certainty that leads to this anxiety and fear in the midst of circumstances. Jesus appears irrelevant to others by our lives. If there's less certainty of Christ in our life and confidence, thinking with the end in mind, how do other people perceive the way we live when they watch us? Do they look and go, wow, there's, 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 a, there's a relevance to this life that I'm missing? Or do they look and see Jesus as appearing less relevant for their day-to-day lives? Lost in retirement. There's this elusive happiness that we think, man, all these other knuckleheads are working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, and now I'm retired. I have all this time. For what? And we get lost in retirement, thinking it's going to promise something that it really can't deliver on. (laughs) Minimal evangelistic enthusiasm. If I'm less confident and certain in the person of Christ, how much do I want to share about him? Instead of feeling like a beggar that's found some bread, I look at the bread I have and I go, it's kind of moldy, stale. No one would want this because I'm less confident and certain. Leads to a minimal evangelistic enthusiasm. And then thinking with the end in mind, fearful when thinking about or confronting death. I look at death, the final enemy, and instead of this hopeful confidence and boldness that stems from my life, instead there's this fear that starts to permeate my thinking. What then might it look like for Luke if we're thinking with the end in mind, Luke desires us to have certainty in the person and work of Christ? What would that look like? What would certainty about Jesus lead to, I think? A complete devotion to Jesus. That there is this undivided attention. feels like sometimes we live with this compartmentalized view of life, this dualistic view of life where we have our spiritual and we have our secular. Instead, there's this complete devotion, this unified view of life. An unwavering commitment to Jesus is the only way. Because who was the king in Luke's day? Caesar. (laughs) And when Caesar said, hey, all religions are fine, And these first century followers of Jesus said, you know, we slightly disagree. How well do you think that landed? (laughs) Became a challenging few years. (laughs) An unwavering commitment to Jesus as the only way. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That there is this unwavering commitment. Where does it stem from? Luke believes in increased certainty in who Jesus is and what he did. A singular pursuit of meaning, significance, and joy doesn't mean we don't enjoy these other things, but we see them as gifts from the giver. You know when you give a gift to your kid on Christmas and it seems they enjoy the toy much more than the person who gave it to them? Wow, a bunch of little knuckleheads, right, running around? I'm like, do you know where that came from? But instead, it seems they enjoy the gift more than the giver. Instead, we recognize the giver is the most significant Singular pursuit of meaning, significance, and joy. And then we intentionally leverage the use of our time, our treasure, our talent, because of the certainty we have. We begin making choices that seem strange. Why would I spend my money here rather than there? Why would I spend my time here rather than there? 
You guys know there's a Vikings game on at 325? It's going to be a great time. I'm going to be leveraging a little bit of my time enjoying the Packers lose to the Vikings. 325. <laughs> and every day, display the joy-filled, life-transforming power of Jesus. Every day, Monday to Saturday. If there's more certainty in the person of Christ, this is what Luke believes. I want to write an orderly account to tell you who this guy is, believing you're actually going to display that in your Monday to Saturday. And then a continuous, joyful, non-anxious presence. When you're wound up with anxiety and it has your, your gut in knots, have you been with someone that just manifests this non-anxious presence in conversation? It begins to alleviate some of even the pressure you might be feeling as you observe just what anchors their life, this non-anxious presence. I want more of that non-anxious presence in my own life. As I get caught up with the circumstances, God, help me find more certainty. I begin viewing retirement as an opportunity for increased direct ministry. I now have 40, 50, 60 hours where all those other knuckleheads are still working at a job. I'm freed up to help more people find certainty in Christ. We begin viewing retirement as an opportunity for more increased direct ministry. And we seek transformation with this fervor, with this passion, with this zeal. I was talking to our staff this week and, and just talking about people on my pray watch list and how beautiful it is because we're a community. This isn't done in a vacuum, right? Where people that I'm praying for are actually on someone else's pray watch list as well. And there's this overlap of the infinite God to step into time and space and reveal himself and draw those people to himself. That there's this beautiful, not done in a vacuum as if it's all on me, but beginning to see a community pray for our city, for our town, for our county. That we actually begin seeking transformation. Why? Because we want people to find more certainty in Christ and then authentically becoming more than a conqueror in the face of death. When I sit with people in that moment, there is this boldness and confidence that I want them to experience more of, like I saw in Wally. As I sat with Wally on death's door, he said he wished he could sing the hallelujah chorus because <laughs> he understands though death is an enemy, it actually is a doorway in a life eternal with Christ. Do we live with that end in mind, certainty with that end in mind, that actually impacts our day-to-day. -day. So here's my three encouragements this week. Man, I went way too long. You guys are so gracious. You guys are so patient with me. You know that? Jenny's like, yes, we know. We are so stinking patient with you. You're just a knucklehead, David. I do understand. So this, and this is where, this is where my wife not being in second service, man, she would be like, she's just give me like the, David, wrap it up, David. So here's the implications. Everyday meeting. Here's our encouragement. Everyday meeting. Everyday meeting with the king. Set your alarm to 104 as a reminder of Luke 1.4 that Theophilus and we, lovers of God, will experience more certainty in this life that we would actually find time to meet with the king, to have an everyday meeting with the king. And if we feel like there's a certainty about our life, here would be my encouragement. Pray and watch and ask God, what are you inviting me into today? as a reflection of generous relationships towards someone that we think could grow in their certainty. Believing that God is actually going to bring them to mind and ask you to act in their life to spark curiosity, 
to experience more certainty. And then third, to have an every May meeting. And we're gonna invite the kids here at this point. Kids, you wanna come on in? And here's what I love about our church family, that we are a multi-generational family, that, that we experience all ages and stages and generations. It's a beautiful thing. Bruce over here, you get to have some wonderful times with our kids. My son's mostly behaved on Sunday mornings. Mostly behaved, yeah, there you go. And, and I love that in everyday meeting, your kids and your grandkids get to watch and observe you model your faith for them. And so here's my hope. Set your alarm, pray for someone who could grow in their certainty, or pray and watch for someone who has yet to experience certainty in order that God might be sparking curiosity in their heart and might be using you as a catalyst in giving them certainty in who Jesus is. So pray with me. Oh, God, you're so good. Thank you for who you are, your work in our life. Uh, what, what a gift that we get to gather under your name and fame. And so help us increase in this certainty uh, so that we can have confidence in our day-to-day. -day. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen.